0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're not going to do the Torah portion this morning. I can't. Oh, I can't. I can't. So the, the Torah portion is the Torah portion for Sukkot. Portion. Because tonight is Yuntif, which means Shabbat tomorrow morning is the first day of Sukkot. It is Chag. And on the Chag, there's a special Torah portion that's read. And the Torah portion that's read is the liturgical calendar. So we read this several times a year when we have Chag, right? So we read about the commandment for the um, to observe the holiday. But we've re- we, read we read it, and we read it, and we read it, and we read it, and we read it. And usually I'm okay, but I can't. I just can't. So I, I like can't. So we're going to do stuff around Sukkot. So we are... Uh, going to study Torah. We are going to study Torah, uh, about Sukkot. Uh, we're also going to study a little bit of Mishnah. Uh, so I, I want to expose you to some of the texts in our tradition around Sukkot rather than just read the calendar, which just is like, okay, it's two lines of Sukkot and the rest is uh, the other holidays. All right. So here we go from Leviticus 23, basukot teshu shif atyamim, Israel yishvu Basukot, you shall live in Sukkot seven days, all citizens in Israel shall live in Sukkot, in order that future generations may know that I made the Israelite people live in Sukkot when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I I am Yudhe Hey, your God. What right away is a question? Right, right away, there's a question. This is why we have a Mishnah on it. Right away. So, what is the question? Basukot Tishvu. Y'all will live in Sukkot for seven days. Everybody, every citizen of Israel will dwell in Sukkot. Why? What is the what? According to Leviticus, what's the reason for dwelling in Sukkot? Lama'an Yedu in order that your generations may know. I caused B'nai Yisrael the people of Israel to, to dwell in Sukkot when I took them out of Eretz Mitzrayim when do we have any record in Torah of them building Sukkot after coming out of Egypt we do not they dwelled in tents right like we don't have any record, any story of them building Sukkot in the desert. None. So this immediately raises a question for the rabbis, right? All right. So we're gonna we're gonna hold that question. <clears throat> Around the time of Sukkot, as we said, there were prayers for rain. Hoshana Rabbah, there was water drawing, and there were there were prayers for rain. And apparently this was a very joyful, amazingly joyful festival. Here we we have the end of Mishnah Sukkah, where it says, anyone who has never seen the rejoicing at the place of water drawing has never seen rejoicing in all his days. So this this is the Mishnah talking about how incredibly celebratory um, the mood was on Sukkot, even as they had this... um, anxiety, if you will, about water. All right, here's one of my favorites that you may not know. This is like truly one of my favorites. All right, this is from Mishnah, the Mishnah again, Mishnah Sukkah. From the worn out pants of the priests and from their worn out belts, they would tear pieces and they would use them as wicks to light with them. And there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not illuminated by the light of the place of water drying. What pants do the priests wear? These are their underpants that they wear under their garment so that when they go up the steps of the altar, remember we had this in Leviticus, so that we shouldn't see their nakedness. Their nakedness should not be exposed when they go up the steps. So they have to wear bloomers under their tunic. So the, the, the bloomers that were worn out got made into torches. And they were everywhere uh, in the courtyard during Sukkot. All right. Again, from the Mishnah, pious people and men of great deeds, really, so, you know, big shots. So pious people and big shots would dance before them with lit torches in their hands and says before them words of song and praise. And the Levites would play with lutes and harps and cymbals and trumpets and countless musical instruments upon the 15 steps which descend into the women's court, people. The women were included in this party. Can you believe it? So the 15 steps that descend into the women's court corresponding with the 15 songs of ascent in the Psalms that upon them, the Levites would stand with their musical instruments and sing. And two priests would stand at the upper gate, which descends from the court of the Israelites to the women's court with two trumpets in their hands. When the rooster first crowed, they would blow a tekiah and a truah and another tekiah. When they arrived at the 10th step, they would again blow a tekiah and a truah and a tekiah. When they arrived at the court, they would for a third time blow a tekiah, a truah and tekiah. They went on blowing and walking until they arrived at the gate that goes out to the east. When they arrived at the gate that goes out to the east, they turned their faces westward towards the temple. When is the temple ever in your west? Our ancestors, and they said, our ancestors who were in this place, their backs were turned towards the temple of God and their faces eastwards, and they would bow eastward toward the sun. But we, our eyes are raised towards God. Rabbi Yehuda says they would repeat and say, we are for God and our eyes are towards God. So we associate Tikiah, Truah, tkiya, all these sounds of the shofar, what do we associate those sounds with? We associate it with Rosh Hashanah. But Rosh Hashanah is Yom Truah. We get no description, nothing, nada, zip, FS, bubkis, zero about what that meant. Yom Truah, a day of Truah. We have, we know nothing. We get a very detailed description in the Mishnah about the uh, shofar blowing, the trumpets blowing to Kiat Truah tikiya, on Sukkot. So imagine all these Levites out there. It's it's essentially an orchestra, right? Harps and cymbals and trumpets, and and then they're going and they're playing the trumpet, and then they're um, And they have, like, all this music happening. So it was an incredibly big civic, which in Israelite tradition, there was no difference between civic and religious, right? It it was a big civic and religious uh, occurrence. So, you know, I I think of our 4th of July, right? We're just an amazing amount of everybody celebrating, the entire nation celebrating um, on this day. All right, all right. so well, let's go back to our problem. Let's go back to our question. So what does it mean that God says, I mean, that Leviticus has God say, so that they may know that I made them to dwell in Sukkot when I took them out of Egypt. We don't get any Sukkot in our narratives about the desert. What do we get? The rabbis go there quickly, right? They need to do something because it doesn't make any sense. Did Kipa Sukot Hushafti Ipne Israel ananei Kavod, Hay Udevre Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi uh Eliezer Omer Sukot Mamash Asulahem. So there's there is an argument in the in the Mishnah about what does this mean that they were made to dwell in Sukot in the desert? And Rabbi Eliezer says um, that these were Ananeha Kavod. These were the clouds that traveled with them. Remember at night, it was a pillar of fire. And during the day, it was the pillars of cloud. That is what Rabbi Eliezer says. God means when God says that I caused them to dwell in Sukkot. I sheltered them. I gave them a shelter when I took them out of Egypt. Rabbi Akiva argues, sorry, I read it as Eliezer the second time. Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Akiva says Sukkot Mamash God made them mamash, for real, for real, Sukkot. So Rabbi Akiva contends that we just don't have the story, but God is letting us know that God actually made Sukkot for them when they came out of Egypt. So this is a machloket, this is an a argument in the Talmud. So now we're getting another piece of Mishnah here. So I referenced this in my talk, right, that everyone had to own their own lulav. Although they said that one cannot fulfill his obligation on the first day of the festival with the lulav belonging to his fellow, meaning you can't borrow it, you have to have one, he may nevertheless fulfill his obligation with the sukkah of his fellow. So you have to have your own lulav, but you And you can't use someone, you can't borrow someone else's in order to fulfill the mitzvah, but the mitzvah of sukkah, of dwelling in the sukkah, you can use your neighbors. Um, And they they quote our, our verse from Leviticus, Leviticus 23, all that are homeborn in Israel shall dwell in sukkot. This teaches that all of Israel are fit to sit in one sukkah. So, but I think the point here is, so you want people to have their own lulav. Like we said, it was a way of beautifying the mitzvah that the courtyard was filled with lulavim, um, rather than just one that, you know, you passed around to a bunch of people. So you have your own lulav, but, um, but it's okay to sit in some, to fulfill the mitzvah of sukkah by sitting in someone else's sukkah. So, so I think again, if we look at well, what might be the reasoning for that, I think it's that you know the, the rabbis want people to sit in each other's sukkot, right? They they want to encourage, they want to encourage people going to someone else's sukkah and sitting in their sukkah. Let's go to Sefer Hatodah um, by Eliyahu Kitov, Rabbi Eliyahu Kitov. We are not making them the sukkot in memory of the first set of clouds of glory that surrounded them when they first left Egypt. Since these clouds of glory left them afterwards with the sin of the golden calf, rather we make them in memory of the clouds of glory that returned for them afterwards and never left them for all 40 years. I love this teaching. I love this teaching. Why? Because it says, mm -mm, it's not God's first impulse to protect the Israelites that we're remembering those went away. Once they sinned at the golden calf, those clouds went away. They were gone, like out of here. And so which ones are we remembering? We're remembering the ones that were given to us after the sin of the calf, meaning we're get, and then stayed with us for 40 years. Which ones are we remembering? We're remembering the ones after we've been forgiven, right? Which is a beautiful teaching coming right on the heels of Yom Kippur, When Israel sinned with the calf, the clouds of glory left them. When Moses came down for the third time, he also brought the commandment of building the Mishkan as a sign that God had forgiven them. Comes the 15th day of Tishrei, what do they see? They see the clouds of glory that returned after leaving them from the sin of the calf until then. From then on, the people of Israel dwell in the shade of the clouds of glory that envelop them like a sukkah. What a beautiful teaching that it's the clouds of glory that we were given after we messed up that stayed with us for 40 years. Just like the, the covenant that is in place today between the Jewish people and the divine. If we want to use that language of covenant, the covenant that's in place is not the first covenant. It's not Sinai. Sinai, that, that first time when God speaks and the people freak out and say, Moses, you go get it, right? That, that's not the covenant that's in place because Moshe tore up that deal. Remember he broke the, the tablets because they, they abrogated the deal. The people stepped out of the covenant. So he ripped up the document, which covenant is in place. The covenant that remains in place to this day is when God says, varecha, I have forgiven you according to your words, to Moshe's request that the people be forgiven. That's, the covenant that's in place. And these are the clouds of glory that we remember, the ones that we were given after we messed up and we were forgiven for being flawed human beings. All right. This is from uh, Rabbi Alan Liu, from This Israel and You Are Completely Unprepared. We sit flush with the world in a house that calls attention to the fact that it gives us no shelter. It is not really a house. It is the interrupted idea of a house, a parody of a house. So it is that the sukkah, with its broken lines, its open roof, its walls that don't quite surround us, calls the idea of the house to mind more forcefully than a house itself might do. And it exposes the idea of a house as an illusion. The idea of a house is that it gives us security, shelter, haven from the storm, But no house can really offer us this. No building of wood and stone can ever afford us protection from the disorder that is always lurking all around us. No shell we put between us and the world can ever really keep us secure from it. And we know this. We never really believed this illusion. That's why we never felt truly secure in it. In the sukkah, a house that is open to the world a house that freely acknowledges that it cannot be the basis of our security, we let go of this need. The illusion of protection falls away and suddenly we are flush with our life, feeling our life, following our life, doing its dance one step after another. So we, we live in our homes and we buy into the illusion that that's going to keep us safe, but we're always acting out Of knowing it's not true. We're always acting out of the fear of death. We're always acting out of the fear of getting sick. We're always acting out of the fear of losing it all. We act that way by getting more stuff, getting more stuff. If I just collect more stuff and put it in my house, then I need a bigger house and I'll get a bigger house and put more stuff in it. And then that's gonna shield me from death and terrible things, right? That's how we act. So, Rabbi Lou is saying, you know, we have this illusion that our house is safe and it's going to keep us safe, but we actually act like we know that's not true. And so what is the remedy for that? It's at least once a year to move into something that screams it can't keep you safe. So that we sit for a while, for a week with the awareness that we're never safe. And we know that, but when we can really get in touch with that, well, you know, like for me, it's sitting in mindfulness practice every week with y'all, right? That when we settle down, yes, yeah, stuff comes up. But if we can sit with it as a practice and be present to it and hold it and attend to it, that's, that's how we become whole people, right? That, that's how we live lives of wholeness and goodness and, um, and honesty and spiritual maturity. So I, I love this from, from him. All right. Uh, another passage from his book. This is a commandment we fulfill not with a gesture or a word, but with our entire body. This is only this and mikvah, by the way. Only sukkah and mikvah. These are the only two mitzvot that's not just an action. We, it, it, we use our entire body to be surrounded by something. That's the commandment. With mikvah, it's to have your body surrounded by water. And with sukkah, it's just leshe sukkah. You don't do anything. You just sit there. You You're right, you're just commanded lay shave, to sit. Um, so we do it with our entire body. We sit in the sukkah with our entire body. Only our entire body is capable of knowing what it felt like to leave the burden of Egyptian oppression behind, to let go of it. Egypt in Hebrew is mitzraim. The word the root of this word is "tsar," a narrowness. So, right, the rabbis play with change the vowels and it's not mitzrayim, it's meitzarim, from the narrow places. We left meitzarim, from the narrows. Egypt was the narrow place. Only the entire body can know what it felt like to be pushed from a place of dire constriction and into a wilderness, a spacious open world. Only the body can know what it felt like to be born. Only the body can know the fullness of joy and this is a commandment that can only be fulfilled with joy. Remember, you shall rejoice in your festival and you will be only joyful, only happy. So we, it, we are commanded actually to, um, to be joyful in the sukkah. All right, let's look at this piece by Rabbi Akiva Weisinger. The sukkah is a temporary structure which we relate to as permanent. We are tashvu ke'en taduru. We sit in the sukkah in the manner in which we dwell in our permanent homes. And each Jew is commanded to oseh keva uveito aray, to eat, sleep, and sit in the sukkah in a manner of keva, permanence. So this is rabbinic. Rabbinic law takes, what does it mean, lay shave basukah, to sit in the sukkah? It's not to sit, it's to dwell, right? We Shave is dwell, so it's sit or dwell. It's the same root. So what do the rabbis say? What does that mean? How do we actually fulfill? What do we actually have to do to fulfill the commandment of lay shave basukah, dwelling in the sukkah? And they say, you have to do what you do in your house, in the sukkah. So to eat, sleep, and sit in the sukkah in a manner of keva, permanence, though the sukkah itself is arai, temporary. There is no attempt to deny the fact that this is a temporary structure. No demand to actually move into the sukkah, but to sit in it ke'en taduru, like the way you dwell. You are sitting in a temporary hut, fully cognizant of its temporary nature, but you are relating to it as if it is permanent. We are commanded to treat a temporary object with permanence. So this, this very notion of there is built into existence. This um, it's like an oxymoron. It's like, it's, it's contradictory, but everything, everything is temporary. Everything us, right? We're all temporary, but, but what does it mean then to treat something that we know is temporary as if it's, Permanent. So almost like as if it had the importance that we give something that we think of as permanent when in fact nothing is permanent. This is why we read Ecclesiastes on Sukkot. This is why we read Echa. Vanity, vanity. It is all vanity. As Micha Goodman says, so, you're supposed to only be happy. You're supposed to rejoice in your festival. So what's the text we're given to read? Ecclesiastes, the most depressing book in the Torah. (laughs) Why is it depressing? Because it points out the fact that everything is impermanent. Nothing lasts. But that's really the secret of what makes things valuable, says Micha, is that they are impermanent. And that, that that is what gives them their value. That's what gives our lives value is the fact that we are mortal, the fact that we are finite. If we lived forever, we wouldn't treasure our days. We wouldn't treasure our experiences. We wouldn't treasure time with loved ones because we could have it forever. The value is, in fact, that it is impermanent, and yet we give it the importance of something permanent in our lives and in, and in, our, and, and in our world. Is there something else? All right. So here is the commandment from Deuteronomy that I just quoted. So the commandment in Deuteronomy is the pilgrimage festival of Sukkot. You are to observe for yourself for seven days after the ingathering from your flesh, threshing floor and from your fat. So you, when you gather in your stuff, right? That you, Taken meaning from the threshing floor. So when you t- when you taken the harvest, you are to rejoice on your festival, right? The samachta bechagecha verse Yedaleh. The samachta bechagecha Ata uvincha uvitecha veavadcha veamatecha. So you, who's supposed to rejoice? You, your son, your daughter, your servant, your female servant, the Levite, the ger the orphan and the widow that are in your midst. So how, how's that going to happen, right? If a widow and an orphan, right, these people who are really vulnerable, like, so you have to make it so that they rejoice as well. And it's clear that, that it's uh, not just about being an Israelite because the Gare, the Gare is assumed not to be an Israelite. So it's not just about Israelites doing this. It's about everyone living in the land of Israel is to celebrate this Chag together. Everybody. All right. This is from the Zohar, an early book of Jewish mysticism. When people sit in a sukkah, the shade of faithfulness, the Shekhinah, which we know are, is the indwelling feminine, right? Uh, divine. The Shekhinah spreads her wings over them. And Avraham, five other righteous ones, and Hamelach David, King David, make their dwelling with them. And so people should rejoice with shining countenance every day of the festival, together with these guests, which in the Zohar is called Ushpizin, who lodge with them. And we must gladden the poor, for the portion of the guests one invites comes from the enjoyment felt by the poor when they eat. All right, this is a very important custom, particularly in renewal circles, um, this custom of Ushpizin. And people are encouraged to say who they want to invite into the Sukkah that night as Ushpizin, as guests, and why. So we're told Avraham, five other righteous ones, and Hamel David, King David, are Ushpizin in the Sukkah. So there are seven. And Shchina spreads her wings uh, over the sukkah and that we are supposed to feed the poor because like I asked before, how, how can they be celebrating Chag if they're hungry and vulnerable, right? So, um, so we are to feed the poor, which we tie to Purim, right? Sending, sending Mishloach Manot, food to the poor on Purim. But, but, to, but for people to rejoice, they have to be given food, or else they can't rejoice. Most of rejoicing, right, is about, is about eating and drinking. Um, so I wanted you to know about this custom of Ushpisin. It is very popular um, right now, very popular. Um, I have mixed feelings about it, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Um, this is from Kohelet. This is from Ecclesiastes. All right, I'm going to read this. The Guest House. By Rumi, this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight the dark thought the shame the malice meet them at the door laughing and invite them in be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond love that all right i want to go to something from be happy um and go to this text that is from likute moharan so this is Likute Moharan. This is uh, Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav. His students wrote down his teachings. He says, "He says Mitzvah Gedolah Tamid." This is a very famous saying of Rabbi Nachman. Mitzvah dolah. It is a big, ginormous mitzvah. Lihyot Basimcha Tamid. To be enjoy Tamid always ulhit gaber laharhiq ha'atwut wa hamara shkhura which involves um lahit to 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 gain strength over and to keep far away from one sorrows and bitterness and um well hamar the 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 dark bitter stuff Rabbi Nachman of Bratislava was bipolar. So he knew very well what he was talking about when he talks about Hamarash Chora, the dark bitterness, the depression, right? He's talking about clinical, serious depression. And so he's commanding that it's a great, he's saying it's a great mitzvah to be in joy, Tamid. Now we can read this always right? Tamid as always, or tamid as we've read in Torah can also mean regularly. So to work regularly at being besimcha and being in joy and to, and to work hard at overcoming and distancing from oneself, all those things that we would associate with depression, bechol kocho, with all their might. All right. So I've given you a lot there to kind of (laughs) hold Um, good love. stuff. Temporal oh, Richard's getting deep here. Love is temporary, but we need to act as if it is permanent. Lovely, <laughs> lovely. Anybody else got any reflections you want to share? I like the idea that it's a mitzvah to be happy. Yes, yes, yes I do too. Yes, it's yeah. Not. It's not. It's not a self indulgence. That it's not. Uh, a selfishness, but that it's a mitzvah, and to put it in traditional language, that God wants us to be happy, and not unhappy. But I don't. I think I think that if I think the happiness here is not a trivial one, but a deep one that he's talking about. Maybe you, you want to reflect on, because too many times people just think that the pursuit of happiness is the end of life. But I don't think that's what this is saying. Right. I I agree. And like Emma Linda saying, joy, right, is a revolutionary thing, right? And that um, there's a Chinese proverb, only happy people can create a happy world. Mm -hmm. Um, That that's what he's talking. And he's talking about, he's talking about a joy that you have to work for, right? Lehit gaber, you have to you have to be a Gibor, you have to be a hero, you have to be Hercules. A Gibor is a, you know, a really strong hero. You have to be a Gibor, whatever, however you would, um, however you would turn that into a verb, <laughs> right? You have to heroically work to keep the marash chora, that dark bitterness away from you to laharchik, to make it go rahok, to make it go far. And um, that's work. He is not someone who believes happiness just happens, right? He's somebody who believes you have to work really hard to to be joyful and to keep at bay all of that darkness and bitterness um, and vote and sadness. It's really, because it's easy for him. He went there a lot, right? And it was a lot of work um, to to keep that at bay. And he, so he is the one who, he's from the Hasidic tradition that believes one of the ways that you, you, you have a rich spiritual life and relationship to God is before you start to daven, before you start to pray, you go outside, you go into nature, and you talk to God out loud for an hour. Out loud for an hour. And you don't censor, and you don't think about what you're saying, you just... You just talk to God. And so when we were doing the IJS, when I was doing the IJS two-year program at one of our retreats, they said, okay, people, (laughs) here's what we're going to do. Y'all are going to go outside. You're going to find your own, you know, space and you are going to talk out loud to God nonstop for 30 minutes. We'll We'll ring the bell when it's time for you to come back in. And I thought you have got to be kidding me. No way. Um, I don't have 30 minutes to say um, to God. Thank you very much. Well, that's definitely. what gardening does for you. <laughs> gardening does that for you. Okay. And wh- why were there no women in that group singing? Because it's not a mixed group. <laughs> oh. um, right, Richard, and then uh, Robin. I was just uh, riffing on what you were talking about, sort of the heroic nature of, of keeping things at bay. The, the image from the poem that you showed us from Rumi about greeting whatever comes—it still puts me in the mind of sort of like a first-person shooter game, where instead of having all these aliens coming at you that you have to sort of blow out, blow away, it's all the bad stuff that's coming in. That you know, getting them out of the way creates the space around you. Uh, that you need to emanate out into the world, to sort of to you know to create to create the world that you want to live in. Nice, nice. That we ha- and, and we have some choice about what thoughts we lean into, and which ones we don't. You know, that's the other thing. Um, is he's very disciplined about about focus. You know, about focusing our time and it said, What is Judith? What in the world? <laughs> Be so happy that when others look at you, they are happy too. Right, so there was a text I was going to show you um, that talks exactly (laughs) about that. I'm not going to toss the end of your story. I just love the picture, the little girl and the camel. Right, (laughs) so um, I know Robin wants to talk too, so I just want to read you, uh, because it goes right with what Judith just showed us. From Likute Moharan, I didn't show you this text, it's on that sheet that I was looking at with you. On the topic of Simcha, says Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav, an analogy. Sometimes when people are happy and dance, they grab someone standing outside the circle who is depressed and gloomy. Against his will, they bring him into the circle of dancers. Against his will, they force him to be happy with them. It is the same with happiness. When a person is happy, gloom and suffering stand aside. Yet, greater still is it to gather courage to actually pursue gloom and to introduce it into the joy, such that the gloom itself turns into joy. A person should transform gloom and all suffering into joy. It is like a person who comes to a celebration. The abundant joy and happiness then transforms all his worries, depression, and gloom into joy. We find that he has grabbed the gloom and introduced it against its will into the joy. That is the analogy. Right? So, right, so this, the, that's how the Rumi poem for me lines up with Rabbi Nachman saying, okay, you don't just distance yourself from them. How, how do you do that? How do you actually do that? You welcome them in. Right, Rumi saying, "Meet them at the door with a cheerful smile." Maybe they're there to clear out some space for delight. And Nachman is saying the same thing: take gloom and depression and whatever, and pull it into the circle of dancing, joyful people, because it's it can't help then, but become something else. Right? When we when we introduce it into joy, Robin, <laughs> um, that's that's the long version of what I was trying to say. I was trying to say, work hard to be joyful and just dance for a few hours. All right. So dancing, gardening, right? Some of these practices, Edward is saying you can't roller skate in a buffalo herd, but you can be happy if you (laughs) want. You people, I never get tired of seeing what the heck. Okay. A can't roller skate in a buffalo herd, but you can be happy if you have a mind to Roger Miller. Okay. Thank you for that wisdom from Roger Miller. Um, so like practices are important things that are going to support being nisimcha, being in joy. And like Bert said, it is actually a mitzvah according to, to Rabbi Nachman and, and his group of Hasidisha people. That, that, that's a mitzvah. It is a serious mitzvah to pursue being joyful and then our obligation is to yank other people from the edges into the middle of the dancing joyful people because <laughs> it's the only, in other words, the only thing that's going to help is for us ourselves to get in touch with joy, right? That's what brings joy into the world. And that's what that song that I showed you was saying is uh, someone who's basimcha me'ir et ha'olam, lights up the whole world, um, it's and contagious. Th- that, it's contagious. And that's how we meet the darkness and how we dispel darkness is by light. Me'ir ta'olam is to light up the world. Bubby? Uh, I wanted to follow up on something you said earlier when, we, they, when you were talking about it. Uh, Mishpazim. It. Yeah. And you said you had mixed feelings about it. And I was curious to see if you would expound upon that a little bit. Yeah, you always nail me. Um, <laughs> she knows me really well. Yeah, um, you know, I don't know. It's one of those. It's one of those mystical practices that I think I move in and out of being able to relate to. Um, we, you know, we we did. I don't know if you remember, Bubby, but we did. I did a Sukkot retreat. In Duluth, one year, I took a bunch mm-hmm. of people on retreat for Sukkot. Mm-hmm. The dumbest, dumbest idea I ever had was right after Yom Kippur. I have an idea. Let me take a bunch of people away and program for them for two days. <laughs> dumbest thing I ever did, but, but but so I needed two days worth of teaching, right, and experiences. So we did we did Ushpizin. Actually, we mm-hmm. each went around and talked about who would we invite into the sukkah. and and why who did we want to invite in and like it was really powerful people cried people you know remembered people who were gone and why they would want them there Mm. and what they miss or you know what they taught them and it was really touching on some level on another level i just i just i don't know i feel really weird about it um okay fair enough it's I don't, it's weird. Yeah. My, my chavruta partner, said, I said, I don't want to do the Torah portion. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, you can't make me. And my chavruta partner said, so do something else with them. Like fine. she goes, how about you know, like, like do ush-bizine. and I'll make ugh, like, <laughs> they like, no, I don't know what it is. <laughs> Laura Diamond speak. I actually, I was just thinking it's, um, this week, in my, my writing group, we came up with the prompt. We just sort of randomly figure out what we feel like writing about in that moment, and we uh, chose "When I feel despair, I, I sort of fill in the blank." And and where I went to was ultimately dancing, and um, you know, a night alone dancing in my living room because I missed it so much. So it's kind of nice to. Hear this tie-in to the um, the teaching. I think Robin and Laura need to start a ki Zoom dance yeah. practice. I'm somewhere. there. Uh, Susan's there. All right, <laughs> Laura. I think we need to arrange a dance party. All right, and you can turn your you can turn your cameras off. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's probably all the your cameras <laughs> no witnesses are permitted. I know that no you're minutes. dancing together. <laughs> right, dance groups a wonderful idea, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Right, but, but it's funny. Look how many people responded right away, right, to this idea of moving the body through space as a as a deep connection to joy, right? As an immediate connection to joy. Um, yes. And amen. Uh, it, right, it's so human you know to move and we i am reading this book um called together by the former um, it was obama's uh health what what's the big the surgeon general and um he he wrote a book called together talking about loneliness in america as as epidemic like it's reached epidemic proportions and it's killing more people like than heart disease and all this other stuff um, and so one of the things he talks about is that there, there is a, a loneliness that is alleviated like just by together moving through space to music. And it's why every single human culture known to have existed has rituals, you know, some kind of dance built into their their culture because there, there is something – kinesthetically, like, you know, when we connect moving our bodies through space with other people, it is, um, it is deeply alleviating of loneliness, Um, you know, without speaking, without talking to each other, without sharing our stories, you know, it's just, just dancing together does something for the human mind, soul, you know, body chemistry, you know, everything that, that, that really alleviates loneliness. So um, it's funny that so many of you responded like, boom, mostly women though. I don't, I don't, I don't see David Russo jumping up to have a dance party. I do not see him doing that. <laughs> Richard Rajay is dancing you. inside. Yeah, <laughs> isn't he the guy who had, who like, you has Latke Judaism? Um, <laughs> dancing inside. All right. Well, I want to uh, close with. Uh, where did I put it? I'm not going to screen share because it's too complicated. Oh yes, here it is. Looking for schach. So, um, so when one is building a sukkah, one needs schach. One needs the covering that goes on top of the of the sukkah, and it cannot be solid. You have to be able to see the stars for the coat ko- for the sukkah to be kosher. You have to be able to see the stars. You have to be able to see nature around you, or it's not a kosher sukkah. So schach, you have to find schach. Like when it's time to do the ki tiki bar (laughs) that passes for a sukkah, Um, when it's time to do that, we have to send our guys out, our custodians out to find schach. They have to go find where are they cutting trees, where are they they cutting branches, so we can get enough schach to cover that thing. All right, so Rabbi Barbara Pensner years ago wrote this, and it still remains one of my favorite things for sukkot. When driving around looking for schach to cover the sukkah, I realized some important lessons about looking for important things in life. Of course, it is possible to save oneself a lot of trouble and buy ready-made schach, but often the most fruitful search comes from the devotion one puts into it. Here are 10 basic steps to follow when looking for schach. Number one, know what you're looking for. (laughs) Once you have figured out what it is you want, it will be easier to find. When you don't know what you are seeking, the search will be much more difficult. The universe tends to respond to a clear request. Number two, don't forget to look in your own backyard. What you want may not be as far away as you think. Number three, bring an extra pair of eyes along if possible. It never hurts to ask for help, especially when you're looking for something important. Often, others can see with clearer eyes and less distraction than you can. Number four, be willing to spend time and travel along circuitous routes. Schach will not simply appear on main roads or jump out to greet you. The pursuit of anything worthwhile takes time. Number five, trust your instincts. You may have to do something that counters the conventional wisdom. Deviations from a plan may offer unsuspected and surprising results. Number six, keep your eyes on the road, even while you are actively looking for schach. While the search is important, so is driving the car. Driving (laughs) carefully comes first, and while getting lost may help find what you are seeking, you also need to be able to return home. Seven, don't stop short in traffic. If something seems good (laughs) enough to stop for it, it is worth going around the block to have a second look. Remember, other people around you are also looking, and your actions affect them as well. Number eight, don't take anything that belongs to someone else. It may be tempting to snip some branches off the evergreen tree that hangs over the road, but don't do it. Respect other people's property, even if you might think they're willing to part with it. When in doubt, ask. Number nine, be ready to cut your be ready to get your clothes and car dirty and to lift heavy branches. If you need something, you must be willing to make the necessary sacrifices for it. And number 10: rejoice when your search has been successful. Anything that took a lot of effort to attain is worth celebrating. You can express gratitude in a multiple of ways, including thanking all of those who helped giving Siddcca arranging a celebration or simply saying a you've been listening to rabbi amy bernstein's friday morning torah study from kehil israel in pacific palisades california for more information go to our website www.ourki.org